Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. Alex Berenson, welcome to the broadcast today and good day to you. Nice to talk to you. We are discussing this as of July 9th, midday. So, you know, Alex, in these COVID times, as I say, when people hear this, who knows how the story will change? <laughs> Would you agree to that in principle? Uh, unfortunately, I, you know, I'm not sure I do agree. It's been very hard to get people uh, to hear the truth. And, you know, uh, look, I've been involved with controversial discussions before discussions of controversial issues. And sometimes it feels like the only way to get people to change their minds is personal experience. So, you know, in the long run, if if people wind up knowing a lot of people who have COVID-19 and don't get very sick from it or who get a little bit sick but recover, that may be the thing that ultimately changes people's minds more than anything else. Um, uh, but but it's a it's a very slow process. Yeah. Alex has written several books. He's also a former New York Times reporter. He's got a new one out uh, called The Unreported Truths About COVID-19 and Lockdowns. Alex, you were what I would consider the original contrarian on COVID-19. I became aware of you by following your Twitter feed, and I've been watching it going back to March, late, late February. Just explain to our audience why you were... Is suspicious the right word? No, no, I wouldn't say suspicious. And actually, you know, in, in February, I was quite concerned about uh, the coronavirus. And, you know, some people said, oh, back then, look at what you said. Yes, I was concerned. And and let's be clear. The question is not whether, uh, you know, SARS-CoV-2 is real. Of course, it's real. The question is not whether people are not are, are some people are getting sick from this and some people are dying from it. That Those things are definitely happening. We know that. The question is, does the societal response to uh to SARS-CoV-2 make any sense does does the does does the punishment we've imposed on ourselves on our children on our economy on our society does any of that make any sense and i would say i started to really ask that question and i go into this a little bit in unreported truths in mid march because in mid march there was a report put out by the imperial college of london and that really uh you know prompted the lockdowns in the us and the uk and, and to some extent worldwide. And when you read that report, if you read it closely, it did say, you know, up to 2 million people or about 2 million people in the United States might die from COVID with no mitigation efforts. That number looks uh, quite high right now. But, but at the time, you know, that's, that was the number they were using. But if you looked very, very closely or, you know, or reasonably closely at the, at the modeling that they'd done, nearly all the deaths were going to be in people over 70 and many, many of them in people over 80. And when I looked at that, I thought, okay, this is obviously a serious virus. It's obviously a real threat, but if it were the Spanish flu or if it were anthrax or if it, you know, if it were Ebola, those are diseases that don't really discriminate by age. And so is there some stuff we could do here that might, you know, mitigate the harm 
but wouldn't blow up society. And by the way, if this thing really is as dangerous as we're being told right now, why is it that the deaths are so heavily skewed to the extreme? Okay. okay, I've got some and numbers. So that's sort of where yeah. I started. Uh, in a moment here, I'm going to share some numbers that we got today. And the reason why I point out the day that we're talking is because these numbers will change. Yes. Uh, they will change over the weekend. They'll change next week. Maybe they'll go higher or lower. Let's see. But just come back to your point. What would you have done? You, you can dictate health policy and behaviors in the United States of America in mid-March. What would Alex Berenson have initiated? So, 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 okay, mid-March, I think there were more uncertainties. So I'd sort of rather talk about what I would do now, what I would do, or what I would have done even early April. Because So mid-March, I think you can make a case, hey, we Let's temporarily shut down the country. Let's see what is happening for, you know, for a week or 10 days or two weeks, especially, especially with what seemed to be happening and what was happening in New York. But by early April, it was very clear to anybody who was paying close attention that we were going to be able to get through this and navigate to the other side of it without societal collapse, that the real risk, again, came from the efforts to stop the, you know, anybody from getting this rather than the risk of the virus itself. So what would I do now? What I do, honestly, is not that different than what people who are experts on infectious disease were saying we should do about flu pandemics. That means you don't shut down the schools. You, you know, maybe you temporarily shut them down if there's a, you know, a large rash of cases for a week or two, but you don't shut down the schools. You don't shut down society. You don't, uh, you know, force people to wear masks in public unless there's really good evidence that doing so is going to reduce transmission, which we don't have. So, so, you know, I think what is hard for people to understand is that sometimes less is more. What you do do is you try to stand up the hospitals, which we've done, which we make sure that they have enough PPE, that, that if there are short-term surges in places, that the doctors and nurses and medical staff who are doing such a good job are not getting overwhelmed. You make sure that best practices in hospitals are, uh, are known and that hospitals are talking to each other about that, and we're doing that too. You make sure you try to protect nursing homes and people in nursing homes, and whether that means you're doing temperature checks for people who enter, whether that means you're making sure staff are being tested very frequently. There are things you can do and should do, but they don't involve locking down society. Uh, so my feeling was here in New York, th there was a moment, Alex, I, I would say it was a 14-day stretch. I'd have to go back to the calendar and really determine whether it was 10 or, or 18 or 20 days, where the hospitals in New York, they were overloaded. In the medical community that I would argue is the best in the world here in Manhattan, they had never seen anything like this before. And as a result of that overload, it affected the rest of the country. As a premise, That's, do you agree with that? I, I agree partly with that. I would say there was there was overload, okay? But remember what people were talking about. In and, and, so, and people were dying, too. And, and, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, we, we absolutely. Ran, we ran absolutely. out of room. Absolutely, people were dying. But people were talking about, we're going to be burying people in Central Park. We're going to have 140,000 you know, hospital beds needed, 40,000 ventilators needed. None of that happened. We saw hospitals you know, in, in, a, in a large city get very full. We saw some small overrun into field hospitals and, uh, and you know, hospital ships. We did not see those get anywhere close to filled up. And I would also, unfortunately, I'd, I'd have to push back on you on one thing. 
on New York City is a very uh, divided place by, you know, race and class. And there are some very, very good hospitals in New York City. There are some of the best in the world. There are also some not very good hospitals in New York City, municipal hospitals where the level of care is unfortunately not great. And that was true before COVID. And, and I have heard now from, I would say, a dozen or so doctors, nurses, medical staff, and patients and patients' families discussing what I can only call substandard care in some hospitals in New York City. Now, does that mean that that's why all these people died? No, people would have died anyway. The pandemic was real and scary in New York City in late March, but things may have been worsened by some care that was received. Okay. Uh, Here are the numbers I mentioned a few moments ago. Since hitting a low on the seven-day average of daily cases a month ago, all right, so that's June 7th, the average daily number of cases is up 156%. Yes. Um, some would argue, well, you're testing more. Well, the average testing number of tests daily is up 44%. So the number of cases is higher than the number of tests. Average daily number of deaths, if I have the number right, on June 7th, it was 844 nationally. As of July 8th, yesterday, uh, Wednesday of this week, it was 599. Yes. Uh, that's a good number. Uh, That means the lethality rate of the virus is lower now than it was 30 days ago. Yes. How do you put that into your understanding of how we should respond? So, so cases are, look, we talk about cases. We should be talking about positive tests. These are positive tests for SARS-CoV-2. It does not mean I'm going to die does not mean I'm going to be hospitalized, does not necessarily even mean I'm going to be sick. It looks like there are many, many people who are asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic. Now, some of those people will progress, especially if they're older or if they have really severe comorbidities. They can progress into you know, needing hospitalization, needing ICU care. Some unfortunate small percentage of those are going to die. What we have learned in the last few months is that the what we call the infection fatality rate for this illness looks much lower than it was what we initially thought it was. It looks like it's about one in 400. Now, that's not certain. There's some variability there, but that's the best estimate by the CDC. So that means that, you know, you hear about thousands and thousands of cases, but it does not mean that the hospitals are being overrun. And in the Sun Belt right now, in Texas, Florida, Arizona, Georgia, the hospitals are not being overrun. They are filling up, and they're you know, and we and we certainly so don't. We, I, well, uh, sorry. Yeah, uh, no, um, it's okay. But on that point, in Houston, yes. I think we heard this week, and I think a little bit in Phoenix, Arizona, where they said they were getting at, at near max capacity. Now, is that oh. true? And and um, if it is true, just like the Fed sent the USS Comfort to New York and they sent the Mercy to L.A. and yes. we built a hospital in Central Park that was largely unused, the convention yes. center here. Um, it was outfitted for COVID patients. It was barely used. What, if they are at max near max capacity in these places, why haven't we built hospitals in Houston, Texas and Phoenix, Arizona? Bill, that's that's a great question. And the answer is they're nowhere near max capacity. So in Houston, they they report, and I check this every day, and I check the there, and it's available, it's updated every day. 
Um, uh, and there's something called the Southeast Texas Advisory Council, which is not just Houston, but the, the areas around Houston. Um, uh, they are in Houston itself, the Texas Medical Center, which is the consortium of hospitals in Houston, has about 1,300 ICU beds, okay? They are at about 1,350 patients. However, without any of the stuff you talked about, without field hospitals or bringing the, you know, a hospital ship to Galveston or any of that stuff, they can add 1,000 ICU beds practically. They, so, so that means they are nowhere near their, even their initial surge capacity. So the other thing you need to know is that they've been at about 1,300 to 1,350 people in beds for about 10 days. So there is reason to believe that they may have topped out right now. Hmm. And by the way, an ICU bed, it's not like it's a special you know, kind of bed. What it really means is that you have more staffing available, that these are hospitals refer to these as higher acuity patients. They are sicker patients, so they're going to be rounded on more frequently. They may need more care. But it's not like there's something special about a hospital bed. What's special is about uh, is about the level of care that's provided. Mm. And what these hospitals are saying, not just in Houston, but in Florida, in uh, in Arizona, in the places where we're seeing the surge in cases, hospitals are managing this right now, and there's no evidence that they can't continue to manage it. I've got a number of questions. You're listening to Alex Berenson, author of several books, former New York Times reporter and author of a brand new book called Unreported Truths About COVID-19 and Lockdowns. He is a contrarian voice. Our conversation continues in a moment. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, What exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you. It's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house, whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Back with Alex Berenson. I have countless questions. I'll try to reduce them as, as best I can. But I, I, I'm, I've been studying psychological effects of, anecdotally speaking, of how this is affecting people. Kids are out of school, parents are at home, people are out of jobs, they're working from home, etc. They don't know what the future is going to be, but they know tomorrow is going to look a lot like today, Alex, because yes. a lot of things haven't changed. And I've always been a believer that if you give any human being 30 days, their habits will change emotionally, physically, psychologically. Well, we're now 120 days down the road. Have you stopped to think about how those changes take root forever? 
I mean, I, I certainly hope not. I, you know, I, it's, uh, I, I am Do, hopeful. You know why I say that? Because I, I give up alcohol for Lent every year. I'm a Catholic. Okay. And so you're talking close to 50 days. Sure. And once you get past the first couple of weeks, you're not even thinking about it anymore. Um, at least that's the case for me. And so if, if you're changing habits for four months, people are living their lives in ways they never had before. Continue. Um. No, uh, listen, uh, my wife is a psychiatrist, okay? So you can you can make yourself phobic, right? You can make, in, in four months, you're certainly right. Or less, you can make yourself phobic. You can make yourself an addict. You know, you can, you can, you can change your behavior in ways that are very negative in a short period of time that, that you need to figure out how to get yourself out of. I, I am hopeful that, that we will get, to the other side of this and that the quote unquote new normal will basically be normal. Okay. Because I am hopeful that people will understand what a really minor risk this is to most people. And that, and that if the media lays off and people can just look around with their own eyes and see, you know, I don't know anybody who died from this. I don't know anybody who got really sick. I got it. And I had a week of, you know, flu like symptoms and I recovered. If, if people are allowed to get there for themselves, I think they'll get there. But it is very hard when, when you know, you turn on other outlets and you see this drumbeat of horrible news and, and people who haven't gone outside. I mean, you, I, I'm sure you've had this experience. I've had conversations with adults and it's like talking to a you know, frightened child. It's like, you can go outside. It's okay. You're not going to die. And I don't, I, I, you're right. Like the longer it goes, the harder it gets. But I am hopeful that people will want to return to normal. Mm. Uh, one more observation from me, and then I want to move on to schools and what's happening in Europe, et cetera. Do you remember the day that Jacob's Javits Center opened? That's a large convention center on the west side of Manhattan along the Hudson River. And they opened it initially for a thousand patients. I, I think it was late April. It might have been early May. It was around that time frame, yes. and I yes. took my show over there, and we went live, 3 o'clock Eastern time, and what, what I've been doing, Alex, before I cracked my ankle, that's a different story, is I walk home every night, um, and New York, before the protests and the riots, was a really easy town to walk in, yes. because there was no traffic. And you could fly. If you wanted a power walk, you could do it. So I'd walk home every night just exploring different parts of the city and seeing how they've changed and adjusted. And that day, I walk. I live down in Greenwich Village. So I'm walking home, and I hit a firehouse at 23rd and 9th Avenue, southwest corner. Sure. And there were 15 ambulances there, and they were doing nothing. <laughs> and I thought, Wow. This might be a good sign. And then I got to a hospital around 12th Street and 7th Avenue. I think it's Lennox. I can't recall entirely. It's catty corner to the old St. Vincent's. Uh -huh. And there was a giant refrigeration truck outside, semi-trailer. And it had the refrigeration truck running and had white uh, leather pull-down curtains to prevent anyone, the media, the public, from seeing um, any movement that happened between the hospital itself and inside the refrigeration truck. And there was nothing going on. And I said, you know, th th these might be two interesting data points in one walk 
that tells me, and I, I went home that night and I just thought, I wonder if COVID is dead, at least in this part of Manhattan. And I was convinced it was, and I haven't changed my mind since, based on social distancing and the masks and the absolute shutdown that has happened in New York. What is your view of that looking back two months? Well, I mean, I think New York clearly had a terror, you know, they had a, there was a bad experience. There was an explosion in cases. Uh, If you look at the numbers, there's reason to believe that millions of people in New York City were exposed to and have already recovered from, you know, from the coronavirus. And there's a big argument going on, which this is, again, this sort of falls in the categories of stuff that a lot of people in the media either don't understand or are not talking about. What percentage of people need to be uh, infected and recovered till you get to herd immunity? Herd immunity is basically this idea that almost all the vulnerable people who, uh, you know, who might get this have already gotten it and whatever their outcomes are or what they are, and the rest of us don't need to, you know, even people who have not been infected at that point become at low risk because it's not circulating very widely. So the, the reason there's a big argument about this is there, there's an increasing number of virologists and immunologists out there who say there are people who seem to have immunity to this without having antibodies, meaning, meaning there's something called the T-cell response, where your body may have been, for some people, some lucky people, their body has been sensitized to other coronaviruses because there are other kinds of coronaviruses, and that enables them to defeat the virus without even mounting a specific antibody response to it. Okay, the reason I mention all this background is in New York right now, it looks like maybe 20 to 25% of people have antibodies. What we don't know is how, I'm talking about New York City, what we don't know is how many people had an immune response and didn't even have antibodies. So it is possible that this is essentially done in New York City right now. Okay, okay. I, I'm not promising that. But what I'm saying is there are smart people out there who believe that might be the case. I, I think 25% is higher than I would uh, have put it. I, I've had a lot of colleagues and friends who have been tested for the antibodies and they come back negative. I've, so, so, but that's, I, I don't know that's what a that randomized, can... it's a randomized study that the state did. So, um, so okay. it, you know, it is the actual number. All right, um, so, um, Alex, then this, schools in America... Um, the date is fast approaching much quicker than people realize. Yes. Do they open? Should they open? And how? So this is something I've been completely clear on. The schools need to open. They should open. They are open essentially all over the world. Certainly most of the developed world, they are open more and more places without any meaningful restrictions on student activity. That is certainly true for elementary schools and, you know, pre-elementary kindergarten, pre-K, um, that it probably should be true for all schools, it probably should be true for colleges too. The reason is very simple. Children are at extremely low risk from SARS-CoV-2. Young adults are at extremely low risk from SARS-CoV-2. They are at much higher risk from things like drinking and driving for young children, and they're at much higher risk from things like abuse and neglect. They are at higher risk from the flu. If If you're a child or teenager, you're at higher risk from the flu. There's no question about it. You're at higher risk from drowning, from fires, from many, many different things. It is, it is unfair to children who need education, who need socialization, who need their lives back to deny them normal school. And most of the rest of the world has either made this decision already. I'm talk, Again, I'm talking about places like Australia. I'm talking about rich countries, Australia, Switzerland, Germany, France, Sweden, Norway, the, the, some of the wealthiest countries in the world, countries where they really care about children, where they have a lot of you know, child care policies and 
and maternity leave, paternity leave policies that people on the left would love for the United States, they have their schools open. Our schools should be open, no restrictions. So and, if you yes. if you then go into what some have considered a Petri dish for a classroom, what do you do if you get positive cases? Uh, you know, you treat it like the flu. If you have a positive case, you go home and you get better for after a couple of days. Most kids clear this very quickly. We don't shut our schools down for flu, except, you know, except for a few days occasionally when there are really, really severe localized outbreaks. This is less dangerous to children than the flu. Why would we treat it differently than the flu? Well, I have, and, I have, and, I have a sister. She teaches high school. She can't sure. wait to get back in the classroom. She uh, has, she has a daughter who um, is headed for her freshman year in high school. Uh, so she, she, her perspective is very interesting because she's a teacher, number one. Uh, she loves her students. Uh, she can't wait to see them again. Her daughter missed her eighth grade graduation and now is entering a new phase of her life going to high school, right? Different school, different social structure, different friends. And so they're both kind of, uh, you know, is it going to happen or not? Um, the teacher's union, however, yes. seems to be very resistant to this idea. Yes. Can we solve this then? Not not because I know you mentioned the kids and the and the the low level of harm that they are exposed to. The adults might be a different story. How do we manage that and can we? So so look, if children are not spreading this to adults, what it implies is that a school as a workplace is actually safer than a lot of other workplaces. It's safer than, you know, working in a retail store. It might be safer than working in an office, okay? So so look, if you're a teacher, the average age of a teacher in the United States is about 42 years old, which means the average teacher is at low risk here unless he or she has really severe comorbidities. If you're a teacher who's you know 300 pounds and diabetic and you don't want to work anymore because you're scared of getting this, look, you're, you should be scared of getting this wherever you are. If, if there's some reasonable way for the school to accommodate a small number of highly at risk teachers, okay. But most teachers are not at serious risk from this, and schools are not going to be a place that, that are exceptionally, you know, that, that's an exceptional transmission vector. So why is it that we're treating teachers differently than other people who have jobs, and aside from the fact that they have a powerful union to protect them? And, and what you said about your, your sister is true of so many teachers I've heard from. They want to go back to work. They want, they want to see their students. But there's a few vulnerable teachers out there. We cannot shut down schools for a handful of teachers with severe comorbidities. It's not right. One of my colleagues said that, you know, the grocery store workers went back in, in the very beginning. At, That's right. At great risk to them. And they were running cash registers and wanted a paycheck. You, you, and guess what? They didn't, for the most part, they didn't get sick. You rattled off a number of countries, mostly Australia and a number of others in Europe. Yes. I'm hearing in Holland, they're in school since May. I yep. went looking for the information. I could not find it. Do you know what's happening in the Netherlands? Yeah, no, they're, they're in school since May. The, the Netherlands, and you know, the Netherlands is not a conservative country, right? I mean, uh, you know, they, their health ministry, they have almost 20 million people. They're, very, you know, very intelligent, you know, very wealthy country. Uh, they, they put out a report uh, as of July 2nd, essentially saying we've seen no problems with reopenings, no large outbreaks, uh, no, you know, no evidence that kids are spreading this in a really meaningful way to adults, no evidence that they're getting sick from this. They basically said there is, that we've seen no problems here. And that was as of July 2nd, after almost two months of reopening. Well, what do you think happened in China? What happened in Wuhan? 
So I, you know, that's the kind of thing I don't like to speculate on. I, I simply don't know. There's, I think there's a lot of people who think that there's been misinformation coming out of the Chinese government, or there was two to three months ago. But what that misinformation is, what they did, how this was spreading, how long it's been spreading for, these are all questions that we really don't have the answer to. And to some extent, because of what's happened with the epidemic in the United States in the last two months, we've kind of forgotten about them. They're really good questions. But my focus is on the U.S. and what we can do to fix things here. Mm. Do you have an opinion as to what Joe Biden does between now and Election Day? Does he campaign? Well, his, or? his strategy seems to have been very successful, which is stay out of the public eye and let Donald Trump, uh, you know, tweet about Confederate flags and stuff. And uh, and obviously, you know, the, the 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 if you look at the polls, the country is not pleased with the way uh, President Trump has been handling this. And um, look, I'm neither a Republican nor a Democrat. I'm a registered independent. I think you can clearly see flaws in the White House's response to, to you know, the pandemic the last few months. I'm glad to see that they're starting to push on schools because I think that's a really important issue. And I, you know, whether or not it's a politically potent issue is something we will see. But mm. I do think kids, you know, parents want their kids back in school. And I'm glad to see the president pushing on yeah. that. Two, two more questions and I'll let you go. And thank you for your time today, Alex. Of course. When do we get a vaccine? And is it, I have no in, idea. Is it in this calendar year? No, I no, no, I can't believe it'll be in 2020. And and look, I am I'm the furthest thing from an anti-vaxxer. Our kids are properly vaccinated. But if you think I'm going to be rushing to get to put my arm out and get this vaccine, if it's rushed yeah. into uh, circulation in a matter of months or a year, which would be faster than we've ever you know developed any vaccine, uh, you know I'm not going to be first in line. That's all I can tell okay. you. Okay. Last question: Where do you find optimism in this story? <laughs> If we have a daily drumbeat of what we had yesterday or a week sure. ago or a month ago. Where do I find optimism? I find optimism in the fact that deaths are going down. I find optimism in the fact that some schools, some colleges do plan to reopen. I find optimism in the fact that there are many doctors, many scientists out there and you know, nurses, medical staff working hard to treat people with this illness and, and learning that it isn't that, you know, devastating for many people. You know, that that's it, honestly. I, I wish I had more places. I, I you know, I think I think we will get to a better place, but I have thought that now for two to three months. So I guess I'm hopeful that over time people will see the real, you know, the outlines of what's really happening here and learn to turn off their televisions and go outside. Wow. In the meantime, the habit trail goes round and round. Alex, there you go. It's great to talk to you. My best to you and your new book. Part two will be out soon of unreported truths about COVID-19 and lockdowns. Alex Berenson. Bill, thanks. great we'll, pleasure. Yeah, we will speak again. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Bill Hemmer. This is Hemmer Time. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.